Welcome to the Underclass Podcast with Austin Picard. I'm an independent researcher who can't stomach being lied to on a daily basis by the mainstream media. While we live in a fracturing society, launched into parallel realities, falling perfectly onto the two sides of the political spectrum, I remain in the underclass. What if most mainstream versions of history are manufactured myths with the ultimate purpose of engineering subservience to the state? What if the vast majority of historical figures withstanding the test of time are more often than not blood-soaked tyrants, widely recast as heroes and archetypal figures to admire in the modern age? In this week's episode, we deconstruct the legend of the Manhattan Project, questioning the ethical dilemma we have all been conditioned to accept as incontestable. As we set the stage for the immoral justification lined with false claims of a nuclear arms race against Hitler and the Nazi occult, we dissect the genocidal mentality that led to the only intentional use of nuclear weapons in an armed conflict in human history. In the words of Edward Teller, theoretical physicist and early member of the Manhattan Project, known as the father of the hydrogen bomb. Could we have avoided the tragedy of Hiroshima? Could we have started the atomic age with clean hands? No one knows. No one can find out. Tuesday, May 8th, 1945, marks the official end of World War II when the Allies formally accepted Germany's unconditional surrender of its armed forces and the last shots were fired on the Eastern Front. June 1st, 1945, 33rd President of the United States Harry Truman, former Vice President under Franklin Roosevelt, issues a warning to Imperial Japan during a formal address to the American people. There can be no peace in the world until the military power of Japan is destroyed. With the same completeness as was the power of the European dictators. To do that, we are now engaged in a process of deploying millions of our armed forces against Japan in a mass movement of troops and supplies and weapons over 14,000 miles, a military and naval feat unequaled in all history. Substantial portions of Japan's key industrial centers have been leveled to the ground in a series of record incendiary raids. What has already happened to Tokyo will happen to every Japanese city whose industries feed the Japanese war machine. If the Japanese insist on continuing resistance beyond the point of reason, their country will suffer the same destruction as Germany. Our blows will destroy their whole modern industrial plant and organization, which they have built up during the past century, and which they are now devoting to a hopeless cause. We have no desire or intention to destroy or enslave the Japanese people, but only surrender can prevent the kind of ruin which they have seen come to Germany as a result of continued useless resistance. By July 26, 1945, U.S. President Harry Truman, U.K. Prime Minister Winston Churchill, and Chairman of China Chiang Kai-shek issued the Potsdam Declaration, 
or the proclamation defining terms for Japanese surrender, calling for the surrender of all Japanese armed forces during World War II. The stated ultimatum claimed that if Japan did not surrender, it would face prompt and utter destruction, even including a warning in regard to the terms outlined in the declaration saying, We will not deviate from them. There are no alternatives. We shall brook no delay. Air raids on Japan had only escalated throughout 1944, and in January 1945, once Major General Curtis LeMay assumed command of the U.S. Air Force, he implemented what's been called an effective but controversial strategic bombing campaign. According to the University of Chicago Press, under pressure from United States Army Air Force's headquarters in Washington, LeMay changed tactics and decided that low-level incendiary raids against Japanese cities were the only way to destroy their production capabilities, shifting from high-altitude precision bombing to area bombardment with incendiaries. The primary objective of the air offensive was to destroy the enemy's war industries through killing civilian employees and undermining civilian morale. Over the next six months, the 22nd Bomber Command under LeMay firebombed 64 Japanese cities in a series of air raids before conducting Operation Meeting House on the nights of March 9th and 10th, 1945, which became the single most destructive bombing raid in human history, when 330 American B-29s rain incendiary bombs on Tokyo, touching off a firestorm that kills upwards of 100,000 people, burns a quarter of the city to the ground, and leaves a million homeless. There's been much controversy over the fact that some members of the Imperial Japanese leadership had been attempting to negotiate with the Allied forces when the decision was made to drop the world's first deployed atomic bomb over the Japanese city of Hiroshima. After much deliberation among the Japanese leadership, Cabinet Secretary Hisatsun Sakumizu recalled that all felt the Potsdam Declaration must be accepted although Foreign Minister Shigenori Togo remained hopeful that the Soviet Union would agree to mediate negotiations and potential revisions to the terms in the declaration. The decision was made not to respond to the declaration until the Japanese government received its response from the Soviet Union. However, Prime Minister Kentaro Suzuki publicly stated that the Japanese policy toward the declaration was one of makusatsu, which means killing with silence. And according to the Pacific Historical Review, the United States interpreted this as meaning rejection by ignoring, subsequently leading to a decision by the White House to carry out the threat of destruction. A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima and destroyed its usefulness to the enemy. That bomb has more power than 20,000 tons of TNT. The Japanese began the war from the air at Pearl Harbor. They have been repaid many-fold, and the end is not yet. With this bomb, we have now added a new and revolutionary increase in destruction to supplement the growing power of our armed forces. In their present form, these bombs are now in production, and even more powerful forms are in development. It is an atomic bomb. It is a harnessing of the basic power of the universe. 
the force from which the sun draws his power has been loosed against those who brought war to the far east. We are now prepared to destroy more rapidly and completely every productive enterprise the Japanese have in any city. We shall destroy their docks, their factories, and their communications. Let there be no mistake, we shall completely destroy Japan's power to make war. It was to spare the Japanese people from utter destruction that the ultimatum of July the 26th was issued at Potsdam. Their leaders promptly rejected that ultimatum. If they do not now accept our terms, they may expect a rain of ruin from the air, the like of which has never been seen on this earth. Behind this air attack will follow sea and land forces in such numbers and power as they have not yet seen, and with the fighting skill of which they are already well aware. We have spent more than $2 billion on the greatest scientific gamble in history, and we have won. But the greatest marvel is not the size of the enterprise, its secrecy, or its cost, but the achievement of scientific brains in making it work. And hardly less marvelous has been the capacity of industry to design and of labor to operate the machines and methods to do things never done before. Both science and industry work together under the direction of the United States Army, which achieved a unique success in an amazingly short time. It is doubtful if such another combination could be got together in the world. What has been done is the greatest achievement of organized science in history. Three days later, on August 9th, the second atomic bomb, codenamed Fat Man, was detonated over the Japanese city of Nagasaki. In totality, the estimated casualties of the aerial bombings alone range between 129 to 226,000. Seemingly uninjured survivors began to succumb within hours or days to what would later be defined as radiation sickness, caused by being exposed to high amounts of ionizing radiation in a short period of time. The only photographs of Hiroshima immediately after the bombing were taken by photographer Yoshido Matsushige, who later described in an interview that everywhere there was dust. It made a grayish darkness over everything. It was really a terrible scene. It was just like something out of hell. Other eyewitness testimonies claim that the bombing started intense fires that spread rapidly through timber and paper homes, burning everything in a radius of two kilometers. By June 1946, a U.S. strategic bombing survey documenting the effects of the atomic bombings would estimate that five square miles in the city of Hiroshima were instantly destroyed, and according to Japanese officials, at least 70% of the city's buildings were also destroyed. Now we turn our attention to the individuals ultimately responsible for weaponizing this apocalyptic technology, ushering in the atomic age a new era, marking profound changes in technological development 
enmeshed with the terrifying implications of nuclear proliferation and mutually assured destruction. We'll start by introducing the official narrative surrounding the formation of the Manhattan Project. According to History.com, even before the outbreak of war in 1939, a group of American scientists, many of them refugees from fascist regimes in Europe, became concerned with nuclear weapons research being conducted in Nazi Germany. In 1940, the U.S. government began funding its own atomic weapons development program, which came under the joint responsibility of the Office of Scientific Research and Development and the War Department after the U.S. entry into World War II. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers was tasked with spearheading the construction of the vast facilities necessary for the top-secret program, codenamed the Manhattan Project. The devil is always in the details, as they say, and the reality behind the formation of the project is much more interesting, leading us to Hungarian-German-American physicist Leo Szilard, who, according to his 1992 biography written by William Lenowet, was known in scientific circles as the father of the atom bomb, although he has been overshadowed by such luminaries as Albert Einstein, Enrico Fermi, J. Robert Oppenheimer, and Edward Teller. Yet it was Szilard who first developed the idea that the neutron-driven fission of heavy atoms could be used to create a nuclear chain reaction, which could yield vast amounts of energy for electric power generation, or atomic bombs. He originally developed and patented the idea while living in London in 1933, and was the first, along with Einstein, who pressed the U.S. government to begin atomic research. Szilard proceeded to co-design with Fermi the first nuclear reactor from natural uranium at Columbia University, where fellow member of the Manhattan Project, George Pegram, ran the physics department. The most available comprehensive breakdown of what has become known as the einstein sealard letter comes from Biography.com, where the article explains, Through friends, Sealard met with Alexander Sachs, a Wall Street banker with access to the White House. Sachs said he had already spoken with Roosevelt about uranium, but that the government decided not to pursue uranium research because Columbia University physicists had told them the prospects of an atomic bomb were minimal. According to the book, The New World, 1939-1946, A History of the United States Atomic Energy Commission, Sachs felt Roosevelt might be persuaded by someone of Einstein's reputation. Einstein, who was also encouraged by Hungarian physicists, including refugees Eugene Wigner and Edward Teller, sent a letter dated August 2, 1939, urging Roosevelt about the possibility that Nazi Germany could develop an atomic bomb. Quote, In the course of the last four months, it has been made probable that it may become possible to set up a nuclear chain reaction in a large mass of uranium by which vast amounts of power and large quantities of new radium-like elements would be generated. Now it appears almost certain that this could be achieved in the immediate future. Warning that this phenomenon could also lead to the construction of particularly devastating bombs, Einstein encouraged Roosevelt to consider a similar program in the United States, and according to the letter, urged him to make contact with physicists working on chain reactions in the U.S. 
Roosevelt wrote back to Einstein on October 19, 1939, informing him about the establishment of a committee of civilian and military representatives to study uranium, according to the Energy Department. Although this was only the first of many such steps and decisions along the way, this committee was ultimately the catalyst for the Manhattan Project. In 1940, Einstein sent Roosevelt two more letters, on March 7th and April 25th, recommending additional work on nuclear research, according to an Einstein encyclopedia by Alice Calapris and others. He wrote again on March 25, 1945, expressing his growing fears about the possible misuse of uranium, but it wasn't delivered before Roosevelt's death a little more than two weeks later. The more famous 1939 letter came to be known as the Einstein-Sealard letter and is widely considered to be the key stimulus for the United States developing the atomic bomb, according to Lanowit. Einstein never worked on the Manhattan Project and had no prior knowledge of plans to use the atomic bombings at Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945. A pacifist who despised war, Einstein came to deeply regret his role in the development of the bomb, later saying, had I known that the Germans would not succeed in developing an atomic bomb, I would have done nothing. Einstein harbored these regrets for the rest of his life. In 1954, one year before his death, Einstein discussed the matter in a letter to his friend, chemist Linus Pauling. Although he cited the fear of Germany developing a bomb as a partial justification, he nevertheless described his letter to Roosevelt as the one great mistake in his life. Development of Substitute Materials was the official code name for the covert operation, now known as the Manhattan Project because of the Army component designating its first headquarters in the Manhattan District. The project began to develop by 1939, although the officially recognized dates of active operation spanned from August 13, 1942 until August 15, 1947 when the Manhattan Project was disbanded after the formation of the United States Atomic Energy Commission. We should at least briefly mention, one of the most common misconceptions in regard to the Manhattan Project is that the scope of the project was limited to the mission of designing and building the first atomic bombs. But much of the evidence made publicly available through Freedom of Information Act requests over the years shows that this was clearly a much larger project with ambitions to not only weaponize this new material, but also to study the detailed effects of radiation on human health through government-engineered radiation experiments on unwitting Americans, lasting for three decades. The project covertly employed up to 130,000 people and was led by the U.S. with support from Canada and the U.K., costing an unprecedented amount of $2 billion at that time. Major General Leslie Groves of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers was the primary director of the project, appointed in September 1942, selecting J. Robert Oppenheimer to head the project's secret weapons lab as the first director of the Los Alamos Laboratory, where he was responsible for the technical and scientific aspects of Project Y. According to the book, American Prometheus, the triumph and tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer. Los Alamos was initially supposed to be a military laboratory, and Oppenheimer and other researchers were to be commissioned into the army. He went so far as to order himself a lieutenant colonel's uniform 
and take the Army physical test, which he failed. However, author Richard Hewlett claims that the plan to commission scientists fell through when many of the researchers balked at the idea, forcing the leadership to compromise by providing a realistic cover for the lab, claiming it was officially operated by the University of California under contract to the War Department. It's finally time for a proper introduction to the real J. Robert Oppenheimer, who has been immortalized in history and pop culture and often portrayed as a morally concerned father figure of the atomic age. After scrounging to find additional content covering the dark details behind the life of Oppenheimer, I discovered the recent work of researcher Patrick McFarlane, found at VitalDescent.com, where he briefly outlines a much more disturbing backstory, claiming that during Oppenheimer's first year of graduate study at the UK's Cambridge University, he was diagnosed with profound schizophrenia that psychoanalysis would not benefit after an acute deterioration of his mental state that began in the fall of 1925. This decline would see Oppenheimer muttering repeated phrases to himself and collapsing in a heap to the laboratory floors to roll around. Oppenheimer's diagnosis came in the fall of 1925 after he attempted to poison his supervising professor with a chemical, reportedly cyanide, obtained from a university laboratory. Oppenheimer's wealthy parents intervened to save his career by convincing Cambridge not to expel him and to recommend the dismissal of criminal charges. Oppenheimer was instead placed on academic probation, which required he submit to mandatory psyche vows. During the winter of 1925 and 1926, Oppenheimer continued to struggle emotionally. According to close friend and Harvard classmate Francis Ferguson, he confided an incident where he became angry at a couple kissing on the train. After the male left the carriage, Oppenheimer reportedly kissed the woman and immediately fell to his knees apologizing and crying. However, after Oppenheimer and the couple had departed the train and were descending the station steps, he threw his suitcase at the woman's head and missed, or so he told Ferguson. Despite these measures, Oppenheimer again attempted murder in January 1926 when he began to strangle Ferguson with a leather trunk strap. Thankfully for Oppenheimer, this event did not occur on university grounds. Instead, it occurred in Paris, where Oppenheimer's parents had taken him for the winter term while he was on the brink of expulsion. Aside from Ferguson, there were no witnesses. Ferguson was a close friend that understood his fevered mental state, which according to Ferguson bordered on the suicidal. Oppenheimer later admitted this event happened and apologized to Ferguson. After his graduate studies, Oppenheimer accepted a Rockefeller Foundation Fellowship at the California Institute of Technology and eventually began working at the UC Berkeley. By many accounts, Oppenheimer's schizophrenia did not hamper his charisma. His opponents claimed he had the uncanny ability to turn bright men, even geniuses, into slavish followers. This charisma likely caused him to be selected to lead the Manhattan Project by Lieutenant General Groves. Oppenheimer also had deep and documented ties to the United States Communist Party, causing many to speculate that he was potentially working as a spy passing along American atomic secrets to the Soviets for their nuclear program. As a young man, 
Oppenheimer had given substantial donations to multiple communist front organizations and even served as a committee member for a communist group called the Spanish Republicans. Although it is often disputed whether Oppenheimer himself was ever an official card-carrying member of the Communist Party, he often gave money in support of many left-wing causes to his closest friends and family, who were all later exposed as being members, including his brother and sister-in-law. Oppenheimer was nearly denied his security clearance due to these communist connections, and if not for the intervention of the director of the project, General Leslie Groves, he may never have been allowed to continue his role directing Project Y. July 20th, 1943, Groves wrote to the Manhattan Engineer District, quote, In accordance with my verbal directions of July 15th, it is desired that clearance be issued to Julius Robert Oppenheimer without delay, irrespective of the information which you have concerning Mr. Oppenheimer. He is absolutely essential to the project. The authors Kai Bird and Martin Sherwin claim in the book American Prometheus that a month later, in August of 1943, Oppenheimer volunteered to Manhattan Project security agents that a man he did not know by the name of George Eltonton had solicited three men at Los Alamos for nuclear secrets on behalf of the Soviet Union. In later interviews, he admitted that the only person who had approached him was his friend Hakon Chevalier a professor of French literature at Berkeley who had mentioned the matter at a private dinner at Oppenheimer's house. Two years prior, in March of 1941, the FBI had opened a file on Oppenheimer and recorded a meeting that he attended at Hakon Chevalier's home in December of 1940. Also in attendance at this private meeting was the Communist Party's California State Secretary, William Schneiderman, and its treasurer, Isaac Folkoff. Oppenheimer never formally paid dues to the Communist Party, but he did make a recurring $1,000 monthly donation to the cause through his friend and party member, Dr. Attis, which continued until April 1942, shortly after he joined the Manhattan Project. Oppenheimer was also romantically involved with a woman by the name of Jean Tatlock, who he dated from 1936 to 1939. She was a known member of the San Francisco Communist Party writer for The Western Worker, a Communist Party newspaper, daughter of a Berkeley literature professor, and student at Stanford University School of Medicine. After their relationship ended in 1939, Oppenheimer quickly met a woman by the name of Catherine Puning, a former Communist Party member who had already been married twice, but her second husband had been killed in the Spanish Civil War as an active member of the Communist Party. She was married to a medical researcher named Richard Harrison when her and Oppenheimer were caught up in a scandal after sleeping together at a party. After staying with him at his New Mexico ranch in the summer of 1940, she found out she was pregnant and quickly divorced Harrison before marrying Oppenheimer as her fourth husband in November of 1940. While married to Catherine Puning, Oppenheimer rekindled his relationship with Jean Tatlock and started having an affair during his time directing Project Y at the Los Alamos Laboratory. According to author Greg Herkin, during the development of the atomic bomb, Oppenheimer was under investigation by both the FBI and the Manhattan Project's internal security arm. 
even being followed by Army intelligence agents during his trip to California in June 1943 to visit Tatlock, who was reportedly suffering from depression. Oppenheimer initially lied to his Manhattan Project handlers about the purpose of the trip, telling them that he was traveling to recruit David Hawkins as an administrative assistant from Berkeley, and later claiming the lie was to cover up the fact that he and Tatlock were having an affair. Although many people believe this meeting was much more nefarious, claiming that this could have been an attempt to pass along atomic secrets to a known communist. Oppenheimer and Tatlock reportedly went to a Mexican restaurant and spent the night together at her San Francisco apartment, all while U.S. Army intelligence agents had them under direct surveillance from outside on the street. As the story goes, this was the last time that Oppenheimer would see Tatlock alive. On January 5th, 1944, she was found dead, lying on a pile of cushions in the bathroom with her head submerged in the partly filled bathtub and an unsigned suicide note. Jean Tatlock's autopsy shows that she had recently eaten a large meal laced with chloral hydrate before her suicide. Chloral hydrate is a barbiturate that induces drowsiness and is known as a common date rape drug. At the time of her death, her phone line had been tapped and she was under surveillance by the FBI. Her brother Hugh Tatlock always claimed Jean had been assassinated, and in the 1975 Church Committee hearings, the CIA's Director of Operations Planning testified that throughout the 1940s and 50s, the CIA kidnapped or assassinated numerous suspected communist agents. It has since been revealed that some of the most prolific Soviet spies were able to infiltrate the Los Alamos site, Project Y, under Oppenheimer's watch, including one of the most successful, by the name of Klaus Fuchs, who was a German communist who fled Nazi Germany to England in 1933 as a refugee. After studying physics at England's top universities, he was approached in May 1941 to work on the British Atomic Bomb Research Project, called the Tube Alloys Program, that would later be absorbed by the Manhattan Project. A communist friend of Fuchs, who was teaching at the London School of Economics, put him in contact with Simon Davidovich Kremer, also known as codename Alexander, who was the secretary to the military attaché at the Soviet Union's embassy, and according to the book Dark Sun, The Making of the Hydrogen Bomb, Kremer, codename Alexander, worked for the GRU, the Red Army's Foreign Military Intelligence Directorate. Fuchs quickly became an asset of GRU in Britain, passing along top-secret information to the Soviets before his control was transferred to the NKGB, or the Soviet Union's Civilian Intelligence Organization, upon his move to New York. After arriving at Columbia University in New York, he was passed off to an NKGB agent in early 1944, who was an experienced group handler codenamed Raymond also known as Harry Gold. By August 1944, Fuchs was sent as British envoy to Los Alamos Laboratory, where he worked in the theoretical physics division with his chief area of expertise focused on the problem of imploding the fissionable core of the plutonium bomb. By 1949, Fuchs was forced to confess to MI5 interrogators that he had passed detailed information on the atomic project to the Soviet Union through courier Harry Gold in 1945, 
as well as further information about Edward Teller's super design for a hydrogen bomb in 1946 and 1947. According to the transcript of his confession from the National Archives, he stated that, The last time when I handed over information to Russian authorities was in February or March of 1949. End quote. He had basically given the plans to the atomic bomb directly to the Russians in 1949, which is the exact year that they succeeded in their atomic bomb program, putting them far ahead of schedule, acquiring this technology in a fraction of the time and cost it took for the Manhattan Project. One of the statements he made to interrogators caused a lot of controversy over the unnamed asset mentioned by Fuchs, who claimed that the NKGB had acquired an agent in Berkeley, California, who had informed the Soviet Union about electromagnetic separation research of uranium-235 in 1942, or even earlier. Klaus Fuchs was convicted on March 1, 1950 of four counts of breaking the Official Secrets Act by communicating information to a potential enemy, and only served nine years at Wakefield Prison before being released in June 1959 and immigrating back to Germany. Former Executive Director of the United States Congress Joint Committee on Atomic Energy, William Liscomb Borden, sent a letter to FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover on November 7, 1953, saying that, More probably than not, J. Robert Oppenheimer is an agent of the Soviet Union. As a result, on December 3rd, President Eisenhower ordered a blank wall be placed between Oppenheimer and any government or military secrets. By December 21st, his security clearance was suspended, pending resolution of a series of charges outlined in the letter. At his 1954 security clearance hearings, he denied being a member of the Communist Party, but identified himself as a fellow traveler, which he defined as someone who agrees with many of communism's goals, but is not willing to blindly follow orders from any Communist Party apparatus. A report found at the WilsonCenter.org claims that Oppenheimer was never formally recruited as a Soviet agent. He was asked, as a friend of the Soviet Union, to help the American Communist Party obtain information on nuclear secrets. Oppenheimer's role was that of a facilitator, which a document called the Merkulov Letter to Lavrenti Beria, the head of the Soviet Atomic Project, dated October 2, 1944, notes in detail. Soviet intelligence's appeal to Oppenheimer and other Manhattan Project scientists was to aid a wartime ally to build an atomic bomb before the Germans could build their own. Both the GRU and the NKVD wanted to recruit Oppenheimer after prior assets, Kiefetz, and the Zerubins were recalled. However, their contacts were broken when Earl Browder and the Communist Underground, through Communist International agent Steve Nelson, no longer could work directly with Zerubin and Kiefetz. Kiefetz had served both as the NKVD and the Com Intern Coordinator for Soviet Espionage. When the Com Intern was disbanded in 1943, Soviet intelligence was looking for a new channel to contact Oppenheimer. This is the problem Merkulov was trying to solve in his letter to Berea. Many Oppenheimer apologists excused this behavior as a principled moral rejection of the strategy called nuclear blackmail. They claim Oppenheimer believed that the implications of one nation owning this devastating technology 
could completely restructure the world order, and that another major power needed to obtain this technology in order to achieve some kind of overall balance in power. I remain uncertain as to exactly what motivated his espionage activities during this time, but I will never forget what his colleague Isidore Rabbi said about Oppenheimer's infatuation with the mystical teachings of the Bhagavad Gita, claiming that this created in him a feeling of mystery of the universe that surrounded him like a fog. Oppenheimer had learned Sanskrit and read the ancient Hindu teachings in their original form during his time at Berkeley in the 1930s, and hours before an event that would change the course of human history, the father of the atomic bomb relieved his tension by reciting a stanza he had translated from Sanskrit. In battle, in forest, at the precipice of the mountains, on the dark great sea, in the midst of javelins and arrows, in sleep, in confusion, in the depths of shame. The good deeds a man has done before defend him. I'm reminded of the Buddhist teaching. Nothing is as it seems, nor is it otherwise. And as we challenge each other to question our assumptions, we end with Oppenheimer's most famous quote, coming from the 1965 NBC documentary called The Decision to Drop the Bomb, when he recalls seeing the first Trinity nuclear bomb test on July 16, 1945. There seemed to be two great views among scientists, and no doubt would be among others if, the, if people knew about it. Uh, on the one hand, they hoped that this instrument would never be used in war, and therefore they hoped that we would not start out by using it. On the other hand, they hoped, or other people hoped, that it would put an end to this war, save countless lives, put an end to a a butchery that had been going on for many years and had been marked by atrocities, concentration camps, murderous raids on cities, um, Rotterdam and Dresden and Tokyo itself. And that on the whole, we were inclined to think that if it was needed to put an end to the war and had a chance of so doing, we thought that was the right thing to do. We knew the world would not be the same. Few people laughed. Few people cried. Most people were silent. I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita, Vishnu is trying to persuade the prince that he should do his duty and to impress him takes on his multi-armed form and says, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. I suppose we all thought that one way or another.